0: Welcome to the Ridley College podcast. Here you'll find expert content from past Ridley events, including our public lectures, a series of scholarly lectures in biblical studies and Christian thought. Tune in to hear from leading voices on the New Testament, children's and youth ministry, evangelicalism, Anglicanism, missiology, and much more.
1: Well, thank you, Brian, for your very kind introduction. And it's a great privilege for me to be here Uh, to share with you in this way. And I give this lecture as an academic and a pastor, a, a professor for over 20 years and a pastor for over 40, and a follower of Jesus for over 50. It's an expression of faith seeking understanding, as the great Anselm of Canterbury said in the Middle Ages. And it's also a quest for insights that might help me cope with evil and suffering at a personal level. Uh, It's my answer. I don't presume to speak for you, anyone else for that matter. And my answer will draw on biblical, historical, theological and philosophical perspectives. But, I hope it's not like a smorgasbord sermon. A bit of everything and nothing substantial. Well, now to the lecture and you have a handout and some of the major headings didn't come out in it and I'll point out that some of them should have been in bold. So, as I deliver this lecture, there's ongoing war in Ukraine There's violence in the Middle East and parts of Asia. Various cancers are afflicting work colleagues and friends. The problem of uh, evil as seen in suffering, human suffering, it's inescapable. Now philosophers divide the problem of evil into two categories. Natural evil is simply the workings of nature that result in suffering physical and mental. Natural evil. I think of the earthquake in Afghanistan earlier this year. People die, people get hurt, people are traumatized. Moral evil results from the activity of human agents. Think of a car bomb, people die people get hurt, people are traumatised. Well, in a world of so much manifest suffering, what can the historic Christian faith say to us? John 1.14 tells us that Jesus is the Word made flesh. God has entered our world of space and time in a new way through the humanity of Jesus. John 11.35 tells us that this same Jesus, the Word who became flesh, wept. In other words, God incarnate wept. But did only Jesus, the second person of the triune Godhead, weep? What of the Father in heaven? In Mel Gibson's harrowing movie, Passion of the Christ, which I can see only once in my lifetime, I think, when Jesus expires on the cross, a tear falls from heaven. Theologically considered, was such symbolism defensible or indefensible? Again, was Dietrich Bonhoeffer right to argue when in his Nazi prison cell that given evil, only a suffering God can help? As we shall see, theologians divide over answering that question. What we'll do tonight is firstly consider the biblical witness in John's Gospel. Next, we'll explore several approaches to the question of uh, Christ and suffering. Some presuppose an impassable God, a God who cannot suffer in any shape or form. Others advocate for a passable, deity. A God who can suffer in some sense. And I'll offer a way forward that I describe as biblically qualified divine impassibility. There's plenty of uh, syllables for you, but that's what you do if you're a professor. You've got to wax long. And this um, biblically qualified divine impassibility is centred on Jesus. And I'll draw out some of its implications, and with it, a response to the problem of evil I could live with. So we start, friends, with the biblical testimony, the biblical witness. That's in bold. Since our focus is on the God who wept a human tear, the Gospel of John is the obvious starting point with its clear testimony to both the deity and humanity of Christ. Even some who see little explicit New Testament support for the doctrine of the incarnation, that God became human, see John's gospel as an exception. Raymond E. Brown, a renowned New Testament scholar, says incarnation is truly characteristic of Johannine Christology, John's doctrine of Christ. Right from the start, John's Gospel presents a divine human Christ. Take the deity. The Gospel begins in eternity, as it were, with the logos, the word, aesarchus, without flesh. In the beginning was the word, well-known words, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1.1. As the prologue, that part of John we're looking at is called the prologue, as it unfolds, the reader learns that this divine logos, or word, Became flesh. Sarks. By the end of the prologue, the logos stands revealed as the unique one who has a human name. Jesus Christ. It's a really wonderful piece of writing. John 1, 1 to 18. I do get excited from time to time, so bear with me. It starts with this rather abstract word that was with God. And then we find this word became flesh. And then we find that this is the Son. And then we find this word that became flesh has a human name. And so John is leading us to that climactic point. The real humanity of Christ is soon on view in, in this gospel. At the well in Samaria, he is thirsty and tired. John 4, 6 and 7. However, it's at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus' friend, that we find that Jesus weeps. John 11, 35. Clearly, this is no Gnostic, docetic Christ who only appears to be human. Docaine is the Greek word to appear and there was a, an early church view that this Jesus was really a spirit from another world and only appeared to be human. Well, John's Gospel will have none of that. We next consider an important council of the early church an impassibility approach, Constantinople II and beyond. The idea of divine impassibility, or the so-called apathy axiom, the idea that God or gods dwell in apathy, indifference to the human condition, argues that the deity or deities cannot suffer. And that's had a long history in philosophical and theological discourse. According to Sextus Empiricus from the second century AD, a pagan philosopher, quote unquote, the dogma of the philosophers that the deity is impassable, that is the tradition. And there were early Christian fathers who argued similarly. Clement of Alexandria is a case in point from the, sec- from the second century. Philo of Alexandria, a Jewish thinker from the first century, likewise. Uh, Philo argued, for example, that in the Torah, when emotion is ascribed to God, it's not betraying affects in God, A-W-F-E-C-T-S, but effects, EWFECTS in us. Not affects in God, so God has emotion, but how we would feel if we were God, but we're human, so we'll have Emotion. But God's not really like that. Marcel Saru argues that Philo, quote-unquote, in Philo we experience God's unchanging and unfailing love, now as blissful, then as suffering, and then as repentance because of changes in us, not in God. And these ideas entered the Christian bloodstream very early in the second century, and has a long history in Christian theology, as theologians like Eric Maskell point out. But, on this view, what can be affirmed is that one of the Godhead did suffer in the flesh. And that brings us to Constantinople II. Sounds like a movie, doesn't it? The sequel. It was held in 553 AD the fifth ecumenical council of the patristic period, the period of the fathers. It affirmed, if anyone does not confess that our Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified in the flesh is true God and the Lord of glory and one of the Holy Trinity, let him be accursed. In other words, God incarnate suffered. Bishop Callistus Ware, an Orthodox bishop and theologian, sums it up in these terms, quote unquote, just is illegitimate to say that God was born, so we're entitled to assert that God died. In each case, of course, we specify that it's the God-man, God-made man of whom this is said. God in his transcendence is subject neither to birth nor to death, but these things were indeed undergone by the logos, the word incarnate. Now, the question arises now, is that the limiting case? That is to argue, That's all we can say about God and suffering. And our answer here will have pastoral implications that I hope to point out later. If that's all we can say, then that is the limiting case. Well, an advocate of this limiting case is the Roman Catholic theologian, Thomas Wynandy. So let's move on to some of the beyond. Constantinople II. This outstanding Catholic theologian argues that there's a weighty tradition behind the idea of the impassibility of God that ought not to be dismissed. Yes, the Fathers did draw on Greek ideas from the philosophy of the day and before that day, but they did it in a nuanced way. What uh, Wayne Andy advocates is something called perfect being theology. And a perfect being cannot change in any shape or form. You either change for the better or you change for the worse, and if you change, you can't be perfect. So there can't be any change in God, otherwise you'd be less imperfect. perfect. But if you take the sweep of the Bible seriously, he argues, the God of the Bible has emotions. Perfect, passionate love. But when Andy says, not fluctuating emotions. Where God's emotions change from one kind of emotion uh, to another. God's displays of anger or compassion or sorrow are predicated upon his unchanging nature as just and loving. So in Genesis uh, 6, 6 and 7, God is grieved over the sin of humankind. That's not to be taken literally, says Andy, because God is unchanging, he's immutable. But it does say something about God, God's holiness and response to human evil. Now, in good Roman Catholic fashion, he argues that God is actus purus, he's pure act, so he can't uh, realize any potentiality in himself, which again, if he did, that would mean change of some kind, which means he's less than perfect. And when Andy affirms, Constantine, for example, too, that one in the Godhead suffered in the flesh. And thus, he says, The Incarnation is genuinely good news for us because the suffering and death of Jesus is the Father's answer to our human suffering. Now we turn next to those who take a different view, who think that God does suffer in some form, and we start with a surprising orthodox voice. Bishop Callistus Ware, he quoted or referred to Constantinople II quite accurately, but what about his own view? It's surprising, it's an orthodox bishop saying this and a noted theologian because he is so big on tradition, the tradition of the holy church, but he acknowledges that the early fathers were so concerned about preserving the godness of God that they may have missed something. And he reflects on a number of Old Testament passages like Judges 10, 16, Jeremiah 31, 20, and Hosea 11, 8. And he concludes this, quote, unquote, if these passages mean anything at all, they must mean that even before the incarnation, God is directly involved in the suffering of his creation. Our misery causes grief to God. The tears of God are joined to those of Man, he says. He'd give uh, Mel Gibson a big tick at this point. A loving God, he argues, could not do otherwise. It has one further argument for a divine passibility that properly respects the godness of God. When we ascribe human-like feeling to God, it's that, human-like. It shouldn't be done in a crude or unqualified way but it comes out of the fact that God's a loving person. He says, a loving person shares with others. God is personal, and personhood implies sharing. God does not remain indifferent to the sorrows of the fallen world. Now, on this view, it could be argued that whatever it means to be an image of God, one aspect of it is that uh, we are God-like in being feeling beings, that there is something analogous between our feeling and God feeling. If that is the case, then there is this likeness between God and us where in our imaging of God our feelings are reflecting something of God's own. In other words, we are theopathic beings. Theopathic beings. There's an analogue to the divine emotionality in our own. That gets distorted by sin in us, of course, but without distortion in God. And now a, a European Protestant voice, Jürgen Moltmann, here, in a groundbreaking book, The Crucified God, argues that, is God the transcendent and untouched stage manager of the theater of this violent world, or is God in Christ the central engaged figure of the world's tragedy, he asks. own answer is clear. Jesus wept over the destruction of Jerusalem that was coming, Luke 19, 41. And as so, tears rolled down the face of God at ground zero, he argues, as surely as they did over Jerusalem. And we are called to participate in these sufferings of God with our own compassion. So he rejects that uh, apathy axiom that so many in the early church embraced and affirms the passion of the passionate God. Uh, He argues that God incapable of suffering with humanity is incapable of love. Now, he's not a Patropassian, that's a kind of heresy, and a heresy is a choice that's toxic to the life of the church. That's the idea that the Father actually died on the cross. That was rejected in the early church period, now he doesn't argue that. The Father did not die on the cross, the Son did, but the Father and the Son suffer in different ways in the inner life of the Trinity in the light of the cross. Well, a way forward, an answer I can live with, so that should be in bold because that's the next major heading. I think a way forward is to draw a couple of useful distinctions. The first one is to distinguish between essential impassibility and affect passibility, AFFECT. I contend that the God of the Bible needs to be understood in terms of a perfect person theology, rather than the more abstract perfect being theology that some hold. The perfect person has the appropriate affect for a given context. Essential impassibility maintains that God's moral character does not change whatever may happen in creation, nor does the divine substance, since God is immutable. Affect passibility maintains that in choosing to pray, God has chosen to be open to feelings of pleasure or pain caused by the actions of another, for example, grief over our sins. Given these, uh, this distinction, some possibilities open up. You could argue that God is both uh, essentially impassible and deny affect passibility. Baron von Hugel. Or one may affirm both essential impassibility but affirm affect passibility. Jim Packer. Or someone may deny both, and I know of no one who denies both. Now, philosopher Richard Creel affirms a position that seems consistent with something like the second of these options. He says, God may be emotionally touched by the experiences and actions of creatures, but not emotionally crushed by them. I think that appears to comport well with the biblical testimony. The God of the Bible is not emotionally crushed by the experiences and actions of creatures because of his essential impassibility. Creaturely actions do not destroy the divine character. However, God is emotionally touched by the experiences and actions of creatures because of his affect passibility. Walter Casper puts it this way. If God suffers, then he suffers in a divine manner. That is, his suffering is an expression of his freedom. Suffering does not befall God, rather he freely allows it to touch him. Now a second distinction is important to this way forward. It's the distinction between an anthropomorphism and an anthropopathism. Isn't this a great time of night to have all this stuff? <laughs> You yeah, know, you're so blessed. <laughs> Again, the Johannine witness is uh, the key here. In his discussion with the woman of Samaria, his dialogue, Jesus affirms God is Spirit, John four twenty four. You know, he, she wanted to distract him with issues of whether true worship was on Mount Zion or Mount uh, Gerizim. Now, in claiming God is spirit, Jesus outflanks her because spirit is not geographically bound to this mountain or that. Well, using Jesus' claim as a control belief, as Nicholas Vortishdorf has taught us, biblical language that describes God as having a human form is clearly metaphorical. God's eyes, ears, nostrils, fingers, arms and the like God is spirit, he doesn't have a physical form. And so when we read that the Lord's arm is not shortened that he cannot save in Isaiah fifty-nine one, that's an anthropomorphism. It's part of an accommodation to our capacity to comprehend the action of God, to comprehend something of his strength and power. But in contrast, an anthropopathism, pathos, you know, feeling, refers to the ascription to God of an emotional life like our own, albeit without the distorting effects of sin post the fall. For example, in Ephesians 4.30, the Holy Spirit is grieved. Is that saying something about us or is it saying something about God? Calvin thought it was saying something about us and saying nothing about God. Well. My problem with that, I'm departing from my full text here, is that if I start doing that with these biblical references to God's grief, why not do it with God's love? Why not do it with God's compassion? I end up with a God I don't know at all. Now, the question may be raised, especially for Anglicans, however, that if emotion may be predicate of deity, does that mean God can be overcome with passions? Article one for those who are, you know, 39 articles, uh, uh, files. Well, if by passions we mean God is subject to irrational mood swings like a celestial gummy spit, rashes of divine blood as a world, then the answer is no. But God may have passions or something like it without having, maybe passionate rather. Without having passions in that deleterious, bad sense. Now, it might be interesting you to know in the early church uh, period, second, third century, Tertullian made a useful distinction between emotions, motus and sensus, and passions, passionis. He argued God has emotions and feelings as we do, but not like those passions in us that undermine our moral character. He read the same Bible we do, he had to do something with all this stuff in the Bible about God, that seems as though God has emotions. Augustine argued similarly. Indeed, for the early church figures, for some of them at least, the scriptural testimony to a passionate God was a clear proof that the God of the Bible was not like the gods of the pagans. The gods of the pagans dwelt in indifference to us, apathy. A God who get, get angry at evil and sin. That is the Christian God, the God of the Bible, Lactantius and Gregory Thaumaturgus, for example. And interesting enough, Thomas Wynandy, for whom I have a lot of respect, has no difficulty in speaking of God as passionate. Remember, he means by that God doesn't experience fluctuating emotion. He says, God is impassable in that he does not undergo successive and fluctuating emotional states, nor can the created order alter him in such a way as to cause him to suffer any modification or loss. But there's a nuance. He says, God is absolutely impassable because he's absolutely passionate in his love. What he's saying, and I agree with it, is God can't be more loving than he is and he can't be less loving than he is. He's not gonna change in character. Is impassable in that sense. Even so, why Nandi would assert God is grieved over our sin. It's not as though God fluctuates from loving to wrathful. Rather, what we're talking about is what holiness looks like when it meets evils. It's not as though compassion means that God has changed emotionally. That's what love looks like in the context of human needs. They are essential. Love and holiness are essential attributes of God, whereas mercy and wrath are contingent characteristics of God, contingent upon the divine decision to create and to permit the fall. Now, Jim Packer has argued powerfully this. I'll quote it, it's quite long. Let us be clear, a totally impassive God would be a horror and not the God of Calvary at all. He might belong in Islam, he has no place in Christianity. If all we can, therefore we can learn to think of the chosenness of God's grief and pain as the essence of his impassibility so-called, we will do well. I think we need to hear Packer afresh. We live in a you know, post-Holocaust world, COVID world, Nine a post-9-11 world. A God is no unmoved mover or a frozen absolute, indifferent to the feeling and impervious to emotion. So on this view, God is impassable essentially. His moral character doesn't fluctuate. But he is responsive. We have a God who answers prayers. I've read people who affirm perfect being theology who say that when we say God answers prayer that's how it appears to us. God by definition can't answer prayer because that would make him responsive. Again, if I may depart from my notes, philosophically I'm a personalist. So for me, in ontology, person is the logical primitive, the most basic category. And in axiology, persons are the most ultimate value. And in epistemology, knowing persons as a person is the best kind of knowledge you can get. Now, persons are both proactive, interactive, and reactive. That's the life of the Trinity. Let's read Genesis 1, proactive. Exodus 34, Moses dialogue with God on Sinai, interactive. And responsive or reactive, think of Jonah 3 and 4 and God's response to the repentance at Nineveh. Perfect person theology I think we need, not perfect being theology. Well, I will run this next paragraph past you. But before I do, what I'm talking about is a biblically qualified divine impassibility. So, I'll run this past you if you want to have a bit of a snooze at this point. Um, You will have a nanosecond opportunity to do so. Now, of course, God is omniscient. He knows all true propositions about suffering and pain and that they are true. For example, human beings experience pain. He also knows all false propositions about suffering and pain and that they are false. For example, there is never any pain in childbirth. However, the triune God also knows pain from the inside. And this is how Donald MacLeod puts it, in the one the three come. In the one, the three suffer. This does not warrant us to say the Father and the Spirit died. The three suffer, but each suffers in his own way. Well, so what? Some important implications. That's what the so what is about. If we believe John's testimony that God incarnate wept a human tear, and I don't know what you think about that. That blows my mind. then some important implications arise for our answer, an answer we can live with. We start, and this should be a, a, a bold head, by the way, implications, just as uh, the way forward should be a bold head too. Okay, the divine character. The incarnate Christ wept a human tear at the tomb of Lazarus' friend, and the watching crowd's reaction is instructive in John 11:36. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. They judged rightly. This is how love behaves in the face of the death of a loved one. Alan Richardson in his creeds in the making unpacks the significance of the incarnation in the following helpful way. In other words, God took the initiative and gave Jesus to the race. Now, if Jesus be man and not in any sense God, this would not be true. We could not then believe that God was so loving as to take action by way of incarnation on our behalf. He elaborates, consequently, if Jesus be not in any sense God, God cannot in the fullest sense be a God of love. In fact, it becomes proportionally hard for us to believe in the existence of a God of love at all. We must realise how important is the doctrine of the incarnation for our belief in the God of love. And he argues this against the backdrop of the human predicament in which we all share. He says, the denial of either the divinity or the manhood of Christ implies consequences disastrous to the conception of a Father God. John's gospel contends in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God but the God, God the one and only who is at the Father's side, he's made him known. And later, Jesus now the speaker in John 14.9 says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Is Jesus a character, a true window into the character of God? I would say so. As an Archbishop of Canterbury said, I A.M. Ramsey, about God, he is Christ-like and in him there is no unchrist likeness at all. We know that God really is loved because of the Christ who is the exegete of the Father. Next subheading, Theodicy and Defense. Here's a, a helpful distinction that I've uh, worked on, that comes from the philosopher Alvin Plantinga, who suggests in the face of evil, whether natural or moral evil, that all we may be able to offer is a defence rather than a theodicy. Now, what is a theodicy? Okay. A theodicy gives you the reason why God has allowed suffering, pain and evil. The reason. For example, that's the price of giving humankind and angels free will. That's the reason. Free will was worth the risk. In contrast, a defence offers a more modest proposal and it's either in a strong or weak form. A strong re- defence gives reasons for trusting in God's moral integrity, his goodness. For example, the love of God seen at the cross and offers a theory of how that is not compromised by the reality of evil. It's a theory. It's not their reason, it's a, you know, it's a theory being offered. Maybe again, the gift of free will to humankind. A weak defense would likewise give reasons for trusting in God's moral integrity, just like a strong defense. But unlike the strong defense offers no account of how the existence of evil comports with that integrity. I have no theory, it would say. And I would contend in the light of the limitations of special revelation, Deuteronomy 29:29, 29, 29, there are secret things that belong to the Lord and there are things that are revealed. In the light of that, only some kind of defense is possible. And I think offering a defense rather than a theodicy is an expression of epistemic humility. That is, we don't know everything because not everything's been revealed. And integral to the defense is the biblical testimony in John that Jesus, God incarnate, wept a human tear. God knows human pain and the experience of evil being the object of evil from the inside. As Hebrews 2.14 and 15 makes plain, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I think Bonhoeffer was right to argue that only the suffering God can help. And he has. I think Baron von Hugel was right to argue that we need help and not just a fellow sufferer. God in Christ instantiated Both desiderata, pastoral comfort, pastoral comfort. Alice McGrath in a discussion of suffering makes an important distinction. He writes, why does a good God allow suffering? Many Christians have written on this theme without necessarily providing the kind of decisive intellectual resolution that some have hoped for. Yet There is a helpful distinction that needs to be made here between trying to understand the intellectual riddle of suffering and learning to cope with suffering, and perhaps growing through it. So the problem of evil, there's an intellectual dimension to it, but there's an existential or personal dimension to it. A lot of this lecture is about, you know, my trying to understand the problem of evil. But now I'm moving more into the area of coping with it. So, When it comes to coping with sufferings and evils, let me make some remarks. I speak for myself here again. Knowing that God is not aloof from the arena of evil and human suffering, I find comfort in that. I don't worship an indifferent God. This was B.B. Warfield's experience, great theologian of late 19th, early 20th century, for most of his life, he cared for an invalid wife. His mental health issue began with nearly being hit by lightning on their honeymoon. Now, this great theologian of the last century appreciated the need to re-envisage our inherited theology given the biblical evidence. In a sermon on Philippians 2, he argued this, quote, unquote, I think it's very powerfully put. Men tell us that God is by very necessity of his nature incapable of passion, incapable of being moved by inducements from without, that he dwells in holy calm. That's that apathy axiom. And unchangeable blessedness, untouched by human suffering or sorrows. Let us bless our God that it's not true. God can feel, God does love. And then he adds to powerful effect, quote unquote, is this not gross anthropomorphism? I'd say anthropopathism because I'm picky. We are careless of the names, and we decline to yield up the God of the Bible and the God of our hearts to any philosophical abstraction." End of quote. The God of the Bible was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, Paul tells us. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 19. That reconciliation involved the pain and suffering of the cross. I might not have all of the answers, but considering Christ and his cross, I have what Bernard Ram described as Christological alleviation. And when I consider the hope of his return and the end of all evils, I have what Bernard Ram described as the prospect of a quote unquote eschatological resolution of the problem of evil, pain, and suffering. I may depart from my text here and say, That's really the narrative flow of Job. In the end, God has to turn up. And it has to be resolved by the eschaton, the last chapter or so, a couple of chapters. That's what eschatological resolution is like. So I'm drawing this to a conclusion. God incarnate of biblical testimony knows how to weep a human tear. In the light of this testimony, we can be confident in a world in which there is evil, as seen in so much human pain and suffering, we have a God who truly understands the human condition from the inside. Although some theologians have had difficulty with ascribing affect passibility to God, few, if any, have had any difficulty in, in asserting that Christ suffered. That's the peg in the ground, if you like. Some have seen Constantinople too as the limiting case, Thomas Wayne Andy. Others have not, like Bishop Callistus Ware. This paper has suggested a way forward and it's argued that God is impassible in the essential sense, but not in the affect sense of the word. God is the perfect person. God is anthropopathic, but not anthropomorphic. And I've described this view as biblically qualified divine impassibility. These affirmations have important implications for understanding the depth of divine love for his wayward humankind, that's me, the possibility for a defense of the divine character rather than a theology, given the unavoidable existence of evils, moral and natural, and its relevance for comfort at the personal level. I may not have a definitive answer as to why a good God allows evil, but when I think of the God who wept a human tear, I have enough of an answer which I can live with and which I can die with.
0: Thank you for listening to the Ridley College podcast brought to you by Ridley College. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and liking our podcast. Also, be sure to check out our Ridley Chapel Sermons podcast through the link in our podcast description. This podcast is made possible through the generous donations of our alumni and supporters. We welcome your partnership with us in our mission of equipping men and women for God's mission in our rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. If you'd like to contribute to our work, you can donate via the link in the description below.